Do you find me too much of a tomboy? I do long to do boy things. Like that game the boys play at the stump. They put their backs to the woods and see how long they can wait before getting scared. It's so exciting. I understand you hold the record. It will never be broken, they say. It's just children's games. How is it you are brave when all the rest of us shake in our boots? I don't know worry about what will happen. Only what needs to be done. Welcome back to The Fear of God. We are glad you are here. We are thrilled that you are here, um, especially in this current season we find ourselves in here at the show where we are recording a special series we have dubbed Springtime for Shyamalan. This is your normal co-host, Nathan Rouse. Typically with me is um, longtime friend and co-host, Reed Lackey. Unfortunately, he was wearing the bad color today, and those we don't speak of just came in and carried him off into the woods. I don't really know what to make of that. I don't really, I don't know what we're going to do if it's just me hanging out and he's out getting, you know, whatever it is these things do to people getting done to him. And Reed, there you are! You're okay! You made it! Turns (laughs) out you were wearing, you were actually wearing the safe color. Yeah. After all, not actually the bad color. I'm a yellow-bellied coward is what I am, Mr. Safe Color Yellow. Wow, you just added some interesting thematic conversation I had not considered. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Wow. That's what I do. I just, I just dive in right there. Just name drop, mic drop. Bam. You did. We can end the episode right there. Just (laughs) let everybody extrapolate what they want. Um, welcome, welcome, my friend, to a third installment of Springtime for Shyamalan. How are you enjoying the series so far? Good Lord, I love it. I've loved revisiting these films, uh, even the ones that I would still walk away considering. Okay, so I'll tell you my experience that there's a handful of Shyamalan films that I still don't quite care for, that I still don't quite enjoy. But even revisiting those, has I have found it to be a rather rewarding experience because I'm looking at them in this broader scope of the sort of the entirety of his career up to this point, sort of trying to piece together in a way that I didn't upon initial viewings, try to piece together, okay, why doesn't this work? What about this does not work? And that's been really interesting to me. And then the films that I already loved uh, have just grown in in esteem in my uh, imagination. And so I've just really been super thrilled that we've done this series. I'm very excited. Yeah. 
It's been fun. Before we dive too far down the uh, down the Shemalan path, I did want to bring up with you an important non-Shemalan related media bit, and that is, my friends, the trailer for one it released. And uh, wow, we all float down here. We do. You'll float too. No, I can't. I can't remember. When does that release? Did well, it's July? September. 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 Oh, the the yeah. schedule right now says September eighth, but if it follows the pattern of old Dark Tower, it's gonna who knows. Yeah. But yeah, right now it's September eighth. Did you look it up? It's official. It's like August fourth now. Oh, that's crazy, man. I don't know what's going on with that. That's a conversation for another time, but I don't know what I don't know what's going on with old Dark Tower. Regardless. Pennywise is out to get you. Yeah, man. I, I tell you, the trailer, I, I had heard mixed reviews about it online, but it scared the be- behoovus out of me, man. I was yeah. it, I was sitting there watching. I was like, nope, 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 nope. Well, uh, that good, opening we've shot. Been, we've been the, praying for the behoovus to get scared of you for a long time. <laughs> the, uh, and that, that opening shot with the, with the boat floating down the yeah, sewage yeah. path. Good Lord. That was great. It's like, don't go. Don't, don't chase it. This only this will only end badly. I know. One thing that I will say that I agree with about some of the critics of the trailer is it, it is entirely possible that the film, despite having some rich frights on its own, may be perhaps too reliant on jump scares. The trailer itself is very reliant on some jump scares, um, and that'll be a little disappointing because the the story itself has an overall creep factor that I think is substantial on its own right. But we'll see. I mean, everything everything about it looks great. Oh, it's gonna suck now. I'm just kidding. I know. I know. Well, that's a strange, that's a strange diversion we just made, but, um, steering back to old springtime for Shyamalan, let's, uh, let's jump into some of this. Oh, um, man. I think you wanted to, do you want to preface all of this by, by sort of talking about this particular chapter of Shyamalan's career? <laughs> I do because I can, well, here's what's funny about it. And I, maybe I'm presuming too much about our listenership because some, uh, we've talked already, we've talked the last couple of weeks about how he, he's kind of uh, something of a divisive, uh, personality as a filmmaker, not because he himself, you know, says uh, a lot of outrageous things, but just his films tend to polarize people about whether they, they really love them or they really, for some reason, despise him. And, uh, the film we're talking about today, like if you were to look at the films of his that have merit, you're not really going to get much kickback about Unbreakable. You're not really going to get much kickback about Sixth Sense. For the type of show we do, Signs probably isn't going to get much kickback. Uh, even The Visit and the recent Split seem like natural inclusions. But we specifically, and we referenced it in our very first episode of this show, that we are very affectionate about The Village. And so today's episode is a good opportunity to kind of dive into exactly some of the, we're calling our series The Springtime for Shyamalan. Perhaps this is a good opportunity to talk about the fall of Shyamalan. Or, or the winter. The winter. <laughs> or the winter, yes. Uh, about some of the films that uh that really are unanimously panned and uh and very sort of derided as a whole as a whole picture so i wanted to talk a little bit i'll save the village conversation for when we're actually talking about the village but i wanted to address specifically lady in the water and the happening we talked a little bit about after earth and last airbender uh last week but i wanted specifically to sort of dive in i rewatched lady in the water and i rewatched the happening you've seen both and yes. you are you are unfavorable I, towards both of them, right? Um, I think Lady in the Water was the first real, like, uh, I can understand historically the village as. See, we I think your your seasonal uh, nomenclature was appropriate. Perhaps 
the village is the fall and everything post that is the winter of Shyamalan. Mm-hmm. Um, I can recognize the village as being a potentially divisive movie in terms of him because everything after that up until kind of the visit for me or even devil, you know, due to his involvement in that. But, mm-hmm. um, right. I did see Lady in the Water. I did see the happening. I didn't like Lady in the Water and there's, I've seen it once. There's some specifics I can approach there. I, I seriously actively dislike hate is too strong a word because the happening just isn't really worth that level of emotional investment. <laughs> right. Um, but I really actively dislike it. Um, yeah. You know, Lady in the Water, I feel like was an interesting exercise. I don't know where you're going with these two particular strands of conversation or if it was just meant to be open ended, but one specific well, thing I, 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 one specific thing I really disliked about Lady in the Water, and you may kick back on this. I don't know. I hated that the opening credit sequence told you the whole story you're about to watch. Oh, I agree with that criticism. Yeah. I no, remember thinking, wholeheartedly. what a terrible choice, mm-hmm. especially for a, a filmmaker who's known for kind of twists and mystery. Mm-hmm. What, I don't even have to watch the movie now. You've literally right. just shown me the entirety of what you're about to live action show me. Well, and the big reason that's problematic for the film itself is because then he devotes way too much screen time to further exposition. You right, tell us the right. whole story up front and then devotes a lot of screen time to characters explaining and further diving into this mythology, oh, um, which is one of the big one of the big problems of the film. I am an apologist of certain elements of Lady in the Water. I am not an apologist of Lady in the Water as an overall film. It's sure, a film sure. that you either connect with certain elements of it or you don't. And I don't think it's objectively uh, that great. But uh, the emotional components of the film and the there are there are some beats in the narrative itself that I actually really strongly respond to, but yeah, I'm I mean, also I think Giamatti's Giamatti's big breakdown towards the end. I mean, absolutely. Very to my recollection, I remember that being very strong. Giamatti as an overall character, his overall character arc is, right. is actually quite lovely. And I think that that's, that's noteworthy in the film. The film has some substantial things to say about purpose and about design and about destiny. Now that doesn't negate some of the problems in its narrative and some of the problems in its structure, but um, I think there's some themes there, not that we would do a whole, ep- a whole episode about it, but I think there's some themes there that might, you know, warrant some merit or warrant a revisit, but sure. it is definitely problematic in its in its overall sort of structure. Now, I will say this for any listeners here and you know what, listeners who don't care that much about Lady in the Water in general, probably not going to do this. But you, Nathan, as a uh, as an educated man who I know enjoys sort of diving into these kind of subjects, I'm going to point you towards a book and it is a fascinating, captivating, and enthralling book that you would enjoy reading a lot. It's called The Man Who Heard Voices or How M. Night Shyamalan Risked His Career on a Fairy Tale. And it's it's written by a man named Michael Bamberger. And Michael Bamberger was a journalist who met Shyamalan at a, at a dinner party one evening and agreed to sort of write a book about his general filmmaking process. And this happened Right after Shyamalan had completed the village. So what accidentally happened is Bamberger has like a play by play of the development and execution of Lady in the Water. And it is fascinating. It is incredibly interesting. Um, I don't think I've heard of that. Yeah. And it is it is so for, for anybody who's interested in just. The creative process, how films get made, the sort of eccentricities of a clearly talented but, you know, sometimes misses the target uh, filmmaker and storyteller. 
You know, it doesn't always paint Shyamalan in the most positive of lights in terms of some of his eccentricities and some of the choices he made, but it makes a strong case. And this is part of what I wanted to talk about with this, with Lady in the Water specifically. It makes a pretty strong case for, you know, what if you're in a creative arts field and you have an audience and you have a public who are responding to your material. I heard actually uh, there was a a good friend of mine who's uh, into musical creation, songwriting and and, uh, musicianship and stuff that um, he said, you know, some songs you write and they're for everybody. They're accessible. They're about broad themes. They're they sort of uh, connect with a wide array of people. And some songs you write are just for you. They're just yours. They come from a similar place in terms of your creative output. But they're really just for you. And it was interesting to look at Shyamalan's career because here's a man who has been so, because of the success of Sixth Sense, he, he was so thrust into the spotlight for, for right. everybody and, and right. became like this, you know, he was being, comp- literally was being compared to Hitchcock and Spielberg after two films. Well, sure, he had sure. made three, but two known films. And really, right. most people thought Sixth Sense was his debut. So... He was already sort of in the forefront with these names being bandied about. And then you get Unbreakable and the the success around that. Signs had a similar sort of, um, you know, ethos attached to it. Then you get uh, when you start getting into the village and you get into Lady in the Water, then some people really were sort of like, oh, man, now he's just on this downward spiral. He's just deconstructing. But when you read Bamberger's book... He's really not doing anything differently than he did in the first couple of times. Just the story came from a different place. It's about a different thing with different intentions. And now it's all magnified with this weight of performance expectation. Sure, sure. And, I can see that. And so as a result. Well, you could, al- you could almost make a case. You, you made a, a reference to music a minute ago. You could almost see and be more gracious towards something like Lady in the Water if it were like a B-side, you know what I mean? Yeah, oh, like, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, oh, you know, it's material from him. Is it going to hit the cylinders that like a Sixth Sense does? No. Is right. it, m- does it merit a viewing and possibly some conversation? Sure. Um, right. Which I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't necessarily say about the happening because I can, but I see what you're saying and I can, I, I, I can, I can dig on that. that yeah. That makes some sense. And, and I think that's part of what is, is frustrating well, frustrating is not the right word. That's part of why I'm a little sympathetic towards it, because in your very appropriate analogy, imagine if a B-side is suddenly thrust as the new single for, right, for a hot right. band and, and it doesn't even chart because it's it's a B-side. It's not right. it's not got the same intentions. It's not got the same structure. And so as a result, everybody's like, oh, man, this single sucks. The band's going down. Their career's over. It's like, whoa, whoa hold on. Right. <laughs> you right. know, and um, and so well, anyway, you got to imagine you got to imagine using using the um the talking points you did just a minute ago in terms of the Hitchcock, the, the Spielberg, like the sheer weight of pressure mm-hmm. is enormous. Oh you yeah. Know? And, and especially when you have for better or worse, I mean, he, and in many ways he did this to himself, but when you've developed a very specific narrative structure, you know, like to deviate from that might feel like you are not honoring your fandom, right? To hew too close to it means you start getting weak entries uh, or people start forecasting, oh, this is what that movie is. This is how it's going to end. Exactly. You know what I mean? So I, exactly. I definitely, yeah, I mean, I think sympathetic is a good word. Um, 
you know, I, I can see how Lady in the Water might fit that mold you're describing. Yeah. So I, I have just a couple of comments to make about the happening, but I did want to just reemphasize the book is called The Man Who Heard Voices by Michael Bamberger. And if you're at all interested in the career of Shyamalan or in the examination of creative creative artists processes, uh, it's a very good book and I highly recommend it. Um, it's it's very, very interesting. So when I rewatched The Happening, so it was my third time seeing it. Wow. I know. First time in the theater, second right. time, shortly after I started dating my wife, uh, she had never seen the movie, and I was like, you know what, this is a good opportunity for me to try to revisit this and see if my my opinions about it changed. That second viewing with my wife, I was like, this movie is the dumbest thing I have ever seen in my life. It is such a ridiculous waste of time, and I was like, and I said, I'm never going to watch this again. There's, until here we are. Until we start doing a, a podcast about, you know, a podcast series about Shyamalan. So here's what I will say about the happening. I think that the first half of the film is pretty well shot, and it has some really compelling visuals. That it is hard to beat that that from the ground shot upwards right, of people right. diving off the building. Right. And, and, and that's not the only one, but there's some really compelling visual moments in the first half of the film and the general setup for the film. Again, not the premise, which I still think is very ridiculous, but the setup for the premise before you find out what's actually going on is pretty frightening and pretty compelling. And it's got, it's got some um, attributions of like just large scale disaster material sure, that, that sure. can work really well. And, and I think some of those beats are good. I think the biggest failings of the happening, three three big ones that I would put to it are number one. Uh, actually, I'll go in reverse order. Number three is the script is pretty clunky. It's got it's got well, way cheese too and much crackers. Sort of- Reed, what are you talking about? <laughs> cheese and crackers. It is so. You like hot dogs? Oh my, you like oh hot dogs? God. Everybody likes hot dogs. That's oh the clunkiest God. script that he has got, except for maybe Last Airbender. And then um, the premise overall is just ridiculous. It's got a fizzled out resolution. It just sort of stops. It doesn't resolve. And uh, and that's not cultivating a mystery. That's just sort of ending your story because you don't want to kill off your main characters. That's a that's that's a very he dropped the ball on that. Premise premise entirely by not having some sort of substantive reason why this was happening. And number one with a bullet, even though I've liked him in other films, Mark Wahlberg. He's terrible. Mark Wahlberg is awful in this movie. I don't understand. Well, it's funny. I would say my experience of the happening when I saw it in the theater and the only time I saw it, I I definitely would highly discourage watching this movie if you haven't seen it, but it it reminds me of in college. I won't tell necessarily all the context of this was with, but I was someone uh, at the time I was in a relationship with suggested watching a particular movie. And this particular movie was Waterboy and with Adam Sandler. Right. Yep. Yep. And you know how like that experience of when you're like already or like questionable of people's life choices. Um, this was one of, this should have been one of those moments, like a big red flag. Um, it took, it took many more red flags to, to seal the deal. But so they were like, Hey, let's watch Waterboy. Let's, let's, you know, it's so funny. You'll love it. You know, everybody thinks because you have a sense of humor, you'll like the dumbest stuff imaginable. Right. And, um, so I, at that point in time, I was already a non fan of Adam Sandler. I love like punch drunk love. Um, I feel like there's another one that's avoided eluding my mind at the moment. But anyway, I liked his more serious stuff, but his sure. comedy always fell terribly flat for me. Yeah. But whatever, you're, you know, <laughs> you're, you're here. Let's watch this movie. Fine. Whatever. Two minutes into it. Um, have you seen it? No. Okay. Well, you don't. 
But um, two minutes into it, you're actually introduced to Sandler's character, who has the most ridiculous vocal affectation ever. I, I, and I, I have and seen I, the trailer. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. I think I paused it and I said, wait, does, does he talk like this the whole movie? Yeah. I said, no, we're not watching this. I'm no. not going to do it. watch it. So I didn't. Um, but it's that same this sort is not of, happening. Right, right. It, that same sort of experience happened with the happening, but I was in the theater. I'd paid my money and Mark Wahlberg, the second he speaks, it was like, wait, no way, no way. You keep waiting for him to come down and be like a normal human, <laughs> but he's not. And just give me a I, second. Just give me a second. No, God, Please no, just give me a second. You know, he starts talking and it was like, there's no way. How, how did they green light this performance? That was the first real, other than Lady in the Water, I was like, Shemalan, what are you doing? Why is this even making it to print? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Well, that and the premise. You remember, you've seen it three times, so of course you remember. <laughs> you remember at, you remember at some point in the halfway or some moment in the movie about the halfway point, I guess it's been since it was in the theater that I saw it, where someone posits about it being the trees and stuff. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Do you remember this? I remember seeing and they turn that out to be right about everything. Right, right. Well, that's it. That's what I'm getting to. I remember seeing that scene thinking, no way. Like, you're like <laughs> oh my God. The that's trees. what you're doing. That is what you're doing. That is where you just had some character randomly offshoot it as a theory and you're going to commit to that for this movie. Yep. And it's ridiculous. Yep. What is fascinating about the happening, other than very little, is the sequence towards the end at the barn house or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. With the old people. I thought that was a pretty compelling sequence. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. In another movie, it would have been really good. Yeah. And, and and here's one thing that is, is fascinating to me is is that any number, this is a, a perfect example of, the trees undermining the forest for me because there's uh, that's a funny that's a funny analogy for this movie. yeah see because um not only yeah in both literal and metaphorical senses like not only are there there are probably four or five individual elements of the happening that taken on their own and examined right. as an individual right. thing i i quite like like i said I but already not marky the, mark's performance no 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 that but, would be one of them but like I already mentioned, there's some visual stylings in the first half that I think are still that that's fantastic. But right. it just and there's even that moment. Uh, John, I don't care if we spoil the happening. John Leguizamo's death scene in the car is actually rather poignant I don't and, and kind of yeah. hits you. Like they're trying to close up all the windows because they realize they're driving into a place where the blah blah blah. They're trying the to air. <laughs> they're, yeah, so they're trying to close up all the vents and everything. And he realizes there's this. It's a convertible and there's this one little cut in the tarp. <laughs> You know? What a stupid sentence you just said. Exactly, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's convertible. Let's close up all the windows. No, no. Oh no, the no, Leguizamo. Oh my Leguizamo god. deserves better than that. <laughs> but uh but yeah, so I mean I still don't I mean I still when I reassessed it, I still gave the happening, I think like two, maybe two and a half stars. Um and and only even gave Out it that 100. much because the <laughs> right. Only even gave it that much because of the few elements that I did find to sort of latch on to. And and what I to to your earlier point, uh Betty Buckley's performance towards the end. Did you recognize that well, you haven't re seen it, but uh so Dr. Fletcher from Split, we right. keep mentioning her. She, she's the crazy old lady in the end of the happening. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of individual moments that are not bad, but, but the overall effect she of must, the film. She is must very live in Pennsylvania. Yeah. That's all he does is he just puts out a call to all these, all these Pennsylvania right. residents. Um, <laughs> but okay. We've already devoted, we've already devoted a good chunk of time to the fall of Shyamalan, but this is 
springtime for Shyamalan. So yes. now yes. it is time to dive whole hard into what I think may be, I think preemptively, it's probably going to be one of our most interesting conversations in this whole series because the village has its problems, but it man, it has got some yes. real valuable things to talk about. So I, I, I've been talking a while about the other stuff. Uh, I want to know, you cited this a couple weeks ago yep. as your favorite M. Night Shyamalan film. I did. And we'll, Justify um, yourself, sir. Sure. Well, um, you know, we'll, we'll formally get to trivial bits, likes, dislikes, and stuff, but just on a, a general sense. Um, it was funny. I rewatched it since I made that declaration, since I proclaimed my, my love for it. And I was a little worried. I was <laughs> like, right. this is going to suck. I'm going to really have to eat some crow <laughs> if, if this movie just doesn't hold up. Um, but I was ready. I was ready to... I, I will say this. God loves Scott Derrickson. But mm. uh, Emily Rose didn't hold up for me as well uh, after the fact. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I was a little worried that might happen, that I'd be like, well, okay, maybe, maybe not. Um, I would like to report that it was a firm, still holds its place. This is your favorite. All right. Well, I, well, here's... Okay, let's caveat that a little bit. I think probably what's going to happen when I rewatch Sixth Sense um, mm. is they will be kind of neck and neck. I do think probably objectively... And even partially subjectively, Sixth Sense is a stronger movie. Oh, no question objectively. I, I'm anxious oh, to hear how you whoa, feel about it subjectively. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't mean to <laughs> question the woods themselves, the, the air itself, the trees from polluting us. <laughs> anybody um, who thinks, I, I love you with all my heart, but anybody who thinks The Village is objectively a better movie than Sixth Sense is factually incorrect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that came through loud and clear just then. Um, <laughs> but I think The Village has such... Uh, here's, here's my sort of broad sweeping assessment of the village. It has some problems, but I'm so gracious towards those problems because what I think is strong about it, you just use this, this sort of through line with the happening, um, or even lady in the water, that pieces of it are strong. I think the village, there are enough strong pieces Mm -hmm. that it still kind of holds together, but the, the weaknesses do threaten it do threaten to sink the ship. Right. Um, well, let's, let's dive in a little bit to some of this real specifically, um, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, um, please. Let's do it. So, in a random trivial bit that I'm going to tie into this, did you know, I had to look this up to be sure I didn't make this up or wasn't just like folklore. Did you know the original title of the film was The Woods? I did know that. Did you know yeah. that? Mm-hmm. Do you know why they changed it? Because there was another film called The Woods, which I have seen that who, came out the same Do you know year. who directed that? Now, that I don't remember. Lucky McKee, my friend. Oh, are you serious? Oh, that's yeah, fascinating. Yeah. That's fascinating. I well, remember. I've seen The Woods. It's not bad. But I didn't remember that Lucky McKee directed it. That's interesting. Well, I remember I remember the first time I stumbled on that factoid of The Village versus The Woods for this particular Shyamalan movie and thinking, it's a shame he couldn't have kept that title. Because I think if you watch The Village, this is going to be a, a weird rabbit trail, but this is speaking generally to certain possible weaknesses. If you watch the movie, the village and call it the woods, and that's what it is the whole time. You are afraid of those woods, just like those characters are. You know what I mean? You, yeah. you yeah, are trepidatious. You are anxious for them. But when you change the title in such a way, now the object of the film is this village, mm. which means now right. I'm thinking about why is this asynchronous? Does that make sense? Oh, totally. And I agree. It's a, it's an odd, that's an odd rabbit trail. I understand that, but it, it's always been interesting and a little sad to me that he wasn't able to keep that title. Cause I do think it changes your experience of the movie a little bit. I think that 
I so am in love with the story of Ivy and Lucius. Yes. Like their, yes. Perf- you know, it was the, the film itself was our introduction to Bryce Dallas Howard. I think she is just effervescent in this film. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. You know, even with some of you use this phrase reference to the, to the happening, I think even with a little bit of stilted dialogue here and there, she mm-hmm. still makes it work. I mean, how far down the rabbit trail do you want to go here? I mean, well, let I me can, just, uh, so, yeah. so let's do this. Uh, cause kind of getting into likes, dislikes here. I have literally just one sort of broad trivial bit sure. and that's that I had completely forgotten prior to rewatching this film, that it features both Jesse Eisenberg in a small role. Well, feature is a bit extreme. But yeah, yes. exactly. He's he's around. <laughs> um, Do you notice? Do you notice he gets um opening credit title, but yeah. he doesn't even have a line? I know. Well, he, he has a line when they're all like shoving him forward when a big group of boys are walking forward. But that's about it. Um, yeah, he's 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 basically like just sort of around in that. He's not the Lex Luthor we would know to, we would n- come to love and know. Not at all. Yes. Some 15 years later. But, and if you haven't seen The Village, I think just it's fair game, like huge spoilers from this point on. But did you notice that there's another actor in there that we have recently seen a film and talked about that is uh, ironically similar in, in basic conceits to The Village? And that's that uh, if I'm saying his name correctly, it's Fran Kranz, either Fran Kranz or Fran Kranz. It's more fun to call him Frank Kranz. So right, right, right. We'll keep with that. Um, he played Marty in the Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, I did recognize yeah, him. Yeah, Marty recognize from him, Cabin in the Woods. I couldn't place him. Yeah. yeah. So Marty from Cabin in the Woods is in this, which is another film that uh, features a conceit of like something. Yep. Unreality. Different yep. is going on behind the scenes. I thought I thought that was really interesting. Also features Sigourney Weaver in in both films. But true. Um. So that was that was my one sort of broad trivial bit, except that. Uh, even though it's a very small role. So uh, really, the cabin in the woods is a sequel to the village, and that would work. Yeah, like, the cabin in the village. The village, <laughs> the village dissipates. You know, they all go their separate ways. Sigourney Weaver goes on to man this apocalyptic nightmare, you yes. know, quashing scenario. And there you go. That exactly. Works. I mean, it, the, all the similarities that the ancient ones, you know, right. like yeah, those yeah, we don't yeah, speak yeah. of. Yeah. It's it's all just see the elders. The, the elders knew all that. Yeah. And they just were trying to save the village elders, from... elders, ancient ones. Right. See? It's all See? over it. It's all right. over it. It's, there it is. Oh, my God. Yeah. This is a brilliant movie. It's, <laughs> yep. It's objectively speaking. <laughs> um, but it was also a delight to see Brendan Gleeson again, even in a small role. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, my, since having seen Calvary, I always enjoyed him. But since having seen Calvary, he's at the he's near the top of one of my favorite working actors right now. And and, uh, and I loved seeing him again. So, yeah, now let's feel free. To, you know, let's keep going down that trail of like things we like dislike sure. i had as one of my likes like bryce dallas howard's performance she's stunning in this movie like you like you said i also really enjoy adrian brody in it i think oh, he, de- yeah. he delivers a wonderful performance yeah. uh very haunting kind of performance especially because of where the character goes um yes. what other what other likes dislikes did did you have we can kind of bounce yeah, back and, and I, forth if you want no that's fine and i think i think what listeners will maybe be surprised or not so much to discover is this is going to be a bit robust uh as we tackle try to make sure we uh, you know get to all these different randomness because this movie does have a lot of interesting things to to uh spur us to dialogue i am such an active unfan of michael pitt it's always unpleasant for me to see him on screen hmm, um yeah. so that would be a dislike <laughs> that was such a strong way of saying that that poor guy but it's just a really small role you know like it is and well, i think like know, two lines but anytime i see him this is like Ugh, <laughs> words i used rapturous soaring emotional i love just the emotionality this movie really wears its heart on its sleeve it and like i said i think that 
the the net just barely holds it all together. Whereas like Lady in the Water, I would say still has some of that hard on its sleeve mentality, but the net just kind of breaks under yeah, the weight of it. It falls apart. Right, right, right. Um the score. I think the score takes what is a relatively okay movie, even though I like it a lot, and just elevates it. Goodness gracious. That that, that score, score is, is amazing. That score might be I know I get teased about lists, you know, by more than just you, but that score uh, if I were to really do a, a drill down and like, what are my yeah. favorite musical scores? That's it's it's automatically going to be top three. Might be favorite ever. I uh, love this score. This musical score is beautiful. Personal favorite, not objectively best, but I don't necessarily need to qualify all that. Uh, you and I texted about this, and this can be part of likes and dislikes. For me personally, you could almost have everything else suck in this movie. And the execution of the scene where Ivy holds her hand out in Good anticipation Lord. of Lucius taking it will, will, will take a garbage movie and uh, elevate it to at least a five out of 10. That scene alone is so powerful. Nathan, I have Reed. seen the village probably, I've seen the village probably four or five times now. This recent reviewing was probably my fifth or sixth time seeing it. And I knew it was coming. I thought about the scene. I've thought about the scene multiple times. The moment he takes her hand and the music changes, I cry. Yep. I have, yep. I do it every single time I see the movie because of what's happening. And this is probably going to, I'll save some of my comments for that scene specifically when we get a little bit into theme. But that moment specifically, like when she holds her hand out and you see the, the creature coming towards her and everything. And then, yeah, yes, viewers of the film know what's really happening in that moment. And they know that she's ah. not... If that's the first time you've seen that movie, I think you're a little unclear. I said, that that's point. what I'm saying. Viewers of the film. Oh. Sorry. Uh, I should rephrase it. The people who have seen the movie already know, yeah, 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 yeah. know yeah. that she's not in any real danger. Right. Know that there's, that there's nothing else going on. She doesn't know that. Sure. And Lucius and doesn't neither know do, that. Neither do that. Yeah. Neither does yeah. anyone else in that house. Lucius and Ivy don't know that. So with the awareness that they don't know they're not in real danger, that moment is powerful Magical. it is so yes. powerful and and him taking her hand the slow motion the music changes it, oh, i, I so tear good. up every time i see that that all play out and uh and i think that that moment again i'll get into a little bit more into it when we get into theme but i think that moment is the hinge point for me of this film what's taking place there substantiated by the the broader narrative is part of why i defend this film a great deal even though i would I would acknowledge some problems with it, but that's right. why I say like that what's happening in that scene connects with me so profoundly that I can't help but love this film. Yeah. And uh, just a few more likes, dislikes, and then we can move on. But like, I think the creature design is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, mean, I like it. The the inclusion of that cloak, like that big yes, cloak over yes. the top, is, it's wonderful. I think they really could have gone a cheesy route. It Once you understand what's happening in the movie, these things make a lot more sense. But even then, there's still sort of a, a shrouded sort of fear element attached to them whenever you do glimpse them. Yes. So I think the creature design is great. As Again, I, I won't defend every line of this movie um, because I do think one of the weaknesses is the implausibility. This is not themes. But the implausibility, it is spoiler there, the implausibility of characters in modern society fashioning an entire uh, yeah. period civilization and completely manipulating their language. Like, that really, really stretches plausibility to the point of almost breaking. Um, but well, there are some... Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, on that specific thing, uh, where did I write it down? It holds up thematically 
and it holds up emotionally, but falls apart utterly in logic and practicality. That was yeah, all. I was just yeah. just to, well, to agree and, with and you. We, well, and we can address that as like this. Like what I was going to say specifically is a few lines that really kind of stay with me a lot is is William Hurt saying to Lucius, "You are fearless in a way that I shall never know." Mm. It's just a very powerful line, um, and I love. I I think their scene, Ivy and Lucius' scene on the porch is just. I mean, that's. <sighs> You, you know, it's beautiful. You, you, you could argue, well, it's genre fiction. It's, it's a genre story. Is it sort of thriller horror? Like, ignore all that. Like, that is an epically romantic moment between these two characters who are just trying to find and figure each other out and themselves out. And I love his button on it. He says, I don't worry about what will happen, only what needs to be done. You yes. know, she asks him why he's never afraid. Yes. Well, you make a, you make a good point and we can, we can tie, use this to tie off likes, dislikes before we move into scares, but. I think, and I texted you a little bit about this on my rewatch. It almost, it, it really kind of hurts my heart that the movie ends the way it does in mm-hmm. the sense that it makes me sad, not because of the content on screen, because I think, and, and this doesn't really brush up against theme so much, but I think if, if Shyamalan's going for a twist, the twist of Noah being the, being the perpetrator of some of this other scurrilous activity that the elders aren't aware of, and yes. ultimately Ivy being responsible for his death, is a very strong twist. Yeah, oh, I like, agree. That's, mm-hmm. that's potent, that's effective, it's narratively sound, it works on every level with everything you've seen up until then. Once she crosses that, that you know, wall line, mm-hmm. it just falls apart, and in yeah. such a sad way, because there's almost this sense in which the movie unintentionally has this cynical sort of note to it. It does. Um, that you've sent the blind girl, you've told her just enough. She still thinks that this, these woods are haunted by these monsters because she just encountered one and she doesn't know what she's just encountered. Mm -hmm. But in terms of just likes, dislikes, it is hard to, it is effective in the, in the millisecond in which it happens as a viewer, you know, in, in other words, if you're not anticipating that ending for a moment, you'll be like, whoa. And then you'll be like, wait, mm. I don't, it doesn't really work. See, um, well, go ahead, go ahead. And, and I had a, I had a slightly different experience about this. I alluded to this, I believe in our first episode, uh, might have, it, it was either our first episode or devil. Um, I alluded to this that, uh, you know, signs, at first, I had mixed feelings about signs has grown on me to where I, I now love it. But uh, when it first came out, I had kind of mixed feelings about it. So then when The Village came out, I had a friend. I don't know if he had gotten a hold of a copy of The Village or if he had spoken to someone who was working on the film. Regardless of that, he came to me and he said, what would you think the twist would be of this basic premise? And I guessed the twist right away because it's the simplest, most... Because you're brilliant. Uh, I'm I'm rather smart. But um, I guessed the twist right away and I had this like big sort of like anger... That's stupid. That's ridiculous. You know, started really casting it down. Wouldn't and and wanted to not go see the film. And it was only because my cousin was in town that he really wanted to go see the film. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll go see this movie and I won't poo-poo the experience for him. So I just went into it and I was very surprised by the general craft of the film, by some of these Mm -hmm. moments that we're talking about. So I had already kind of had my moment where I was like, well, this ending is stupid, but I kind of went into the film knowing that the ending was going to be kind of dumb and wound up really enjoying and appreciating the film. I did want to note that it's, 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 uh, cinematographer is Roger Deakins, who's right. a legend in, yep, I mean, yep. he's shot, his, his work is so brilliant and it's so beautiful. This film looks 
phenomenal. Uh, yes. and even in its, even in its lesser moments, it looks wonderful. And, and so thinking about like that twist and that ending, I agree with you. I don't think it's really, I don't know that it's really needed, but here's the problem. And maybe we'll get into this when we get into theme, uh, without that general twist, the theme is not the same. Like, like with, without that specific twist of what the, the, the villagers are up to, the, the well, theme, I mean, well, okay. I, I, let me, uh, I'm, this is happening in real time. So be a little gracious with me. But I think if I understand what you're positing with the whole, like the twist about Noah stuff being enough is let's say this film really does take place in the 1900s or the, uh, the late 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, that it really takes place there. And the villagers themselves are simply fabricating these creatures. And that it's, it's really in olden times, but they're, they're just, they're just right, fabricating right, right, those right. that we don't speak of. If you're saying that that in and of itself, that they're just fabricating these creatures would have been a good enough premise and keep it all in the 19th century, that I would agree with. And I think that that would hold up better than what we, what we genuinely get. Because it just, the, what we genuinely get about them really being in modern days and all these, gymnastics that they've got to go through to keep this village secluded and their right, own right. seclusion um, that that's just too much to try to ask for logically but if you do have like this small little village that some bad things have happened to because of you know things that happen in the town and progress and whatever and then that they've created these monsters to sort of keep the villagers at bay that is still interesting and I think that would not necessarily have been as derided as what we get with the village so, yeah, I was about to say the theme doesn't stay the same, but the theme stays the same as long as the elders are fabricating the monsters. If the elders right. are fabricating the monsters, the theme remains right. intact, and you didn't necessarily have to set it in modern times to get that theme across. Well, and it's just, it's it's a B-side ending, you know, to piggyback right. the conversation we had earlier. It's, it's not an ending that I think is ultimately the best choice. I think it's an ending that a writer's room comes up with as part of several options. Yeah. Um, and you ultimately say, well, because what it does is it feels like it so undercuts the entire framework. I do think it thematically holds up. Yeah, I agree. I, I, and, and on a certain level, again, it's not, it's not an ending you might not think of for a twist to this movie. Right. I just think it's an inappropriate choice if you want us to keep some measure of integrity about what has all come before. I agree. You know, with there's that. a, there's yeah. a difference between something like a sixth sense, which opens your horizon over what you have just seen and something like this that makes you be like, Oh, you just lied. You know what I mean? Like, well, okay. Does that make so, sense? Yeah, oh, it totally does. And something that I read in Bamberger's book is um, one of his, and her name escapes me, but uh, one of the executives at Disney who was partnering with him on all of these films, she called out the problem with the village by saying like that opening shot with the tombstone where he lists the dates, yep. you yep. know, and she yeah. said right there, she said, you've lied to your audience. And his justification for it was he said, this film is about lies. That's what this whole film is about, is it's about sure. lies and lying. Right. But what I think we're scratching at right now that isn't articulated in the book and that I haven't heard prior to our conversation, anybody else posit, uh, though I'm sure smarter people elsewhere have, but it's just that like you still can get across the theme about lying and right. distrust of authority right. and everything like that and right. not necessarily have your film be 
conceded in a real, you know, present day, but pretending to be a hundred years ago. That, that all could have still come across. I think it, it, just keeping it where it was. Um, I would be interested to know. We'll, we'll let, let's let's segue a little bit towards scares. Um, I would be interested to know because I do think there's a way in which the movie kind of undercuts its own thematic elements too. But but let's let's if it's okay, you feel sure. good about let's move into let's the scares. It. Yeah, let's um, do just it. Because clearly we can talk about this for quite a while. Um, <laughs> I think one of my favorite movie going experiences, and I would probably put it in maybe top ten. I don't know where exactly on that list it would fall on the lackey list, but um, the experience in the theater, the first time watching The Village, when Noah stabs Lucius. Oh, the, my gosh. The audible collective gasp of the audience was so amazing because you just, okay, again, we're talking about narratively sound twists. Yes. That is a character twist. That serves everything you've already seen. Absolutely. And substantiates everything. You don't see it coming. You don't. It is extremely unexpected and very surprising, but it makes perfect sense. Yes. And, and so when it happens, even the way it's shot, you think that, in other words, the proximity of the camera to both of these actors, you would naturally presume something sort of bad might have just happened. But you still don't expect it. You know right. what I mean? Like, oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. There, and even go ahead. I, I was. I apologize. See, we're both no, so no. excited about this that we were trampling right. all over each other. But the uh, uh, so not only the the part that really sells it for me, the moment itself is shocking. With cameras on their faces, and then he looks down and right. realizes right. that he's he been withdraws stabbed. the knife. Uh, uh, brief trivial bit note: the film actually earned an R rating. Because in the first cut of the film, there's a sound effect there. Oh, wow. And, and, and it earned an R it rating. It worked so much better without it. Exactly. So they removed it to gain the PG-13. And Shyamalan said, this scene works so much better now. This is a, a much stronger scene without that sound effect. And so basically, that part is enough. But what gets me every time, Nathan, and kudos to Adrian Brody. Uh, I don't know if you can tell, but like uh, Joaquin Phoenix is on the ground calling out Ivy's name, which is heart-wrenching. Mm. Um, sure. But... When Noah, like, puts oh. the knife down, starts when to walk goes away, back. goes back and does it again. Good Lord. It is horrific and frightening and heart-wrenching and very, very powerful. And I think I agree wholeheartedly with you. Very effective. And it falls in line completely with everything we've seen from these characters up to this point. Works very, very well, even for the 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 twist about Noah that we see sure. later, oh, like yeah. it falls yep. in line yep. with everything, and it, it, it's a wonderful story. Well, beat. and and the, even the way you're describing it is just reinforcing this notion of what makes me so disheartened by the ending, because you've got such a great, fantastic, emotional through line, and three really rich characters in Noah, Ivy, and Lucius who become victims of just an utterly implausible plot. Yes, you know what I mean. Like yes. these are just really strong characters with really sincere and effective and organic and real emotional dynamics going on. That then you just are like, yeah, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, you guys. You know? <laughs> and I think, and, and I think, if I would say anything to you, you know, we may have some listeners who check it out that really love the village. We may have some people who are. I think most of our listeners are probably listening to this, going, "What are these guys going to say about this movie?" And I would say this: I would say, if you if you have any interest at all 
in the things that we're talking about, revisit this film and in your mind, imagine just that, pretend it's all happening yeah, the way it's supposed to that, that uh, pretend that it's not happening in present day and that the conceit is really just the elders can, you know, lying to the villages about the, the existence of the creatures. And I think you will find a lot more substance to to glom onto, And I think you'll have a lot of things worth diving into, which we're, we're about to. I, th- I had listed for scares. I had Noah's stabbing of Lucius listed in my scares. I don't know why I put this in scares, but I did have one thing that uh, stuck out to me in the rewatch uh, this time. Maybe it stuck out to me before, but Sigourney Weaver, when she's talking about the the animals getting killed, which the animals getting killed is horrific enough as it is. But when the animals are getting killed and sort of skinned and left for everybody to find, she said the line is the method these animals are are using uh, may be or the, the method that these. Uh, pigs and uh, little creatures are killed with may be a sign that whatever's doing it suffers from madness, which oh, is wow. a huge wow. foreshadowing yeah. that it's yeah. Noah, you know? And, uh, and so that, that stuck out to me. I was like, holy crap. Cause Noah's the one doing all of that. And, right. uh, and, and then the other thing that I wrote down for scares is still, still gets me every time. It's creepy as crap is, um, the hide and seek game in the woods. Oh man! Yeah, when it's when fantastic. How that ultimately culminates in Noah's death and well, and oh, you know what's so amazing about that scene? Again, talking about the experience of watching this movie the first time and why I can be gracious towards a broken ending narratively because so much of what came before was so strong is something like that because you hear William Hurt's echo oh, voiceover there of there were rumors that there might actually be these creatures. Right. You know, when I was a teacher, there, there were war- rumors. Of this. Sure. And I remember being in the theater, watching that scene thinking, Oh my God, they're really real. Oh my God. You know, like, right, right, like right, you, right. you are so caught up because even watching her, when she pours out the magic rocks, you like, Oh, she knows this is all a facade. Yes. But then you see this real one out in the woods. Oh, well, it, 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 it begins with it's initiated by her falling in the mud pit, which is scary in and of itself. Right. Right. Um, but then, you know, culminates with her, which is, a, again, so much about this works until it just doesn't, which is so annoying. It is. But it's her raising her arms with her back to him oh, in front of the pit. The thing, oh, it's, my gosh. Which which calls back to the to the right, she said right. she wanted to play that game. She said right. she wanted to to be that level of brave. And right. Like, yeah, that all works. How tragic that she is the cause of Noah's death. Yes. You know? I mean, just yeah. really fantastic. Um, awesome. Yes, this is very fun. Let's get into some themes here. Um, I've got a whole wealth of stuff we can. I know. Discuss. I have like I have like six or seven things. We'll get to what we have time for. My, man. Um, so I'm going to read this a little bit and then can unpack some. Um, okay. So I, I said this, I used this language earlier. I love the movie whoring its heart on its sleeve. There's a strong emotional resonance in what's kind of an unorthodox romance. But is it condoning that which it seems to be condemning? Hmm. Because the the elders are the villains. Let no one be confused here. Yes. But by the time the movie ends, and you can feel free to kick back on this, the legacy of their misdirection is going to continue. Yes. Ivy is, ig- Ivy is ignorant to Noah's activities and thinks there was a real one after her. And I want to play with that a little bit because in many ways... And, and feel free to pick this word apart if you want to. There's a way in which I can't tell if this is a confused narrative. Like, because there's a way in which 
the movie and Shyamalan perhaps through it is trying to indict the elders. Right. Maybe. But I don't feel like the end supports that argument hmm. because the end, they get away with it. Right. Now you could, you could make the case. Well, sometime in the far future, they're still going to get found out and there's all this sort of stuff. Sure. But the way the movie ends is Ivy thinks there are monsters and she doesn't have any clue what it is she encountered to, to get the medicine. Right. And the elders know their secret is safe. Anyway, my point is. So, so we can pick that apart if we want to, but, but I want to address something broader and, and in terms of our usual strain of conversation here of, of what are some faithful ideas we can pull out from this. And it's fascinating to me to watch this movie because there is this attempt in so much of our modern Christian versions of, of faithful living, of living, attempt this. There is this way of secluding oneself, mm-hmm. of cloistering oneself of letting fear of the world drive you away from the world. And here's another thing we can pick apart. They then <laughs> utilize fear to keep the younger folks from knowledge and awareness. Yes. But it's done. In other words, the elders would see themselves as noble. They would see themselves as we are doing a favor to these people, to our, our, the generations that are coming under us by keeping them safe. You know, it's this, it's this idolatry of safety all over again. But it is so unfaithful, right? Because yeah. if you want to borrow scriptural language, if, if Jesus himself uses geographical language ever, what does he say we're supposed to be? A city on a hill. Yeah. It cannot be hidden, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. Okay. And I, and I think there's something really fascinating here and very applicable because I'll be doggone if we don't attempt to do what the elders do every day of our lives. Yes. Which is utterly withdraw and completely shield and shelter ourselves from harm, from fear, from quote unquote the world. And yet it is so opposite of what we are called to. It's funny. I was, I was hashing some of these thoughts out with my wife and she said something like, well, the Amish, she, she was trying to use the Amish. I said, well, the Amish still exist in current culture. And in fact, if anything are a better example of kingdom living than any other, because they are trying to display actively a counter version of what living can be. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The Amish is a good sort of comparison to what the people of this village are trying to do in that the Amish are, no, are not in denial about the outside world. They just right. they just don't belong to it. They don't operate right. in the same manner that the outside world does, but they are not pretending that the outside world does not exist. And I do think that there's a tendency in Christian circles to kind of operate pretending we're, we're going to go to Christian businesses. We're going to watch only Christian films. Right. We're going to only listen Ugh. to Christian music. Uh, we only want a Christian plumber and Christian doctors. And it's, it's in those sort of, in that sort of mindset that says we are going to separate ourselves out and no longer be in the world. Not only right. content right. to not be of it, we're no longer going to be in it. We're going to operate on a whole other level. And if we have a, a Christian substitute, for everything, right. then why not just go ahead and take the the quote-unquote Christian version of all of this other stuff? And I think that tendency, that temptation, I'll call it, is palpable. 
and is is often when you, when people think about sort of the consequences of sin or the consequences of of things that that can destroy us and that can uh, dig its heels into us and cause destruction. I'll, I'll say it this way: there are times, perhaps a multitude of them, where the appropriate response to a sinful temptation is utter abstinence. There are absolutely sure, scenarios sure. in which the appropriate response to a temptation is abstinence. But there are other scenarios in which abstinence does not become practical. And I don't mean in terms of like, oh, well, you, you have to operate a certain way. Right, right, Look right. at the Amish, you know. You will not be able to escape temptation by simply escaping from all of the things that caused right, the temptation. Right. And that's illustrated directly in the narrative because what prompts the elders to try to say like, okay, maybe she, maybe we let her go into the village. It's yep, because yep. for the first time in this village, the very thing they were running from has taken place for the yep. very first time yep. through completely the interactions in the village. The very thing that they were waiting, that they were trying to escape has happened to them in real time. Right, right. And that's why, and you know what? We were sort of beaten up on the premise earlier. I don't want to divert us back to that, but I'm now realizing that Without modern times, you don't have modern medicine, and I don't know if Lucius survives. Well, sure, but but, but regardless you can of that, play with that a little bit. Yeah, yeah but uh, just to acknowledge that, in case listeners are sitting there going like, "Oh, these people are dumb. They didn't think about this." Well, we thought about it, um, <laughs> and we are dumb. <laughs> but uh, but here's what I wrote down, sort of sort of in that I, I wrote down, and I don't even know this is probably too lofty of a statement, but I said, "Immaturely responding to the consequence of sin creates unreasonable monsters." So, saying that again, sort of piecing it out, is that if we don't respond to the temptations that we all suffer from, and the temptations that are all present, and the very real reality of sin that, is, that exists in our heart right now, if we don't respond to that in a sort of prophetic and Christ-like way, then we're going to create monsters. We are going to fabricate monsters of alcohol. We're going to fabricate monsters of sexuality. We're going to fabricate monsters of any number of things that definitely have consequence to handling them in an inappropriate and immature way. But then we create those objective things and we make them into those we don't speak of. We make them into right, things that are right. that we are not allowed to even entertain. We're not allowed to even, you know, it's like the old Derek website, don't uh, the old Derek web song, don't teach me about moderation and liberty, just give me a new law. Like right, don't right. don't teach yep, me yep. how to handle this. Don't teach me how to be a mature adult living breathing embodiment of Christ likeness in the world. Just give me another rule yep, that I yep. slam down follow to the letter and move on with my life. That's what most of us think. Well, I shouldn't say most of us. That's what well, I think I, uh, an unprophetic way of looking of, at it. I don't is. think I don't think most of us think that actively. I do think that's very subconscious and in fact one of the things I wrote down that sort of syncs up with what you're saying is, you know, religion and and you could make a great case that these people are 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 practitioners of a religion. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I said it is corporately agreed upon superstition. Mm-hmm. You know, it is, it is, we are all agreeing to operate under these very specific guidelines, which is, you know, we're, we've created these monsters. You need to acknowledge that they are real, um, to, in order to yes. keep everybody safe and in line. 
Um, you need to in, indoctrinate everyone to the be- the safe colors and the bad colors yes. and what these things are references to. Because in the moment, those things seem kind of silly and, and incidental to a story. But when you look at them through the lens of people creating a system of belief in order to achieve a specific result, it all works together. And in fact, this is what you clued me into at the top of the recording today. You know, you talked about um, the yellowness, <laughs> yellow yeah. being the safe color. Think about it. Like, yeah. yellow is predominantly associated with cowardice. Mm-hmm. And what do they use as the safe color? Like, cowardice. It, yes. it couldn't be more in your face. And, you know, you, you, you fed a lot of different thoughts there. And I think it's fascinating how, you know, this is what I'll say, why I think there's a way in which to me, and you, you can help clarify this for me, that, that the end is a bit, it kind of breaks its own narrative in an unfortunate way, because a presiding theme of this movie is fear and what we do yes. when we face it. Right. And the architects of the story we are watching in this movie have fled in the face of fear in a very real, tangible, substantive way. Absolutely. Well, then you have this very real conversation between Ivy and Lucius where she, she highlights to him why it is he's never shows fear. And his line is, I don't worry about what will happen, mm-hmm. only what needs to be done. Yes. And I think that's such a wonderful incisive definition of what happens to us in the face of fear. And that's what happens to these people. They, their fear of all the bad things that could possibly happen to them based on these admitted tragedies that do befall the, the elders. You know, my, my so-and-so was killed by this, right. this happened to this person. These are real things, but they don't operate under the, under the paradigm of, okay, well now what needs to happen in order not just to not experience these, these things again, but to be a whole person again. They, yeah. they worry now about all that will happen related to this yes. and they flee. And so where I'm going with this is Lucia says this. That's, that's a paramount theme breaker, right? You know, that's, it's like, yeah. okay, yeah. this is, this is where we're meant to sort of see things going, but it just doesn't land there. And so I feel like it's a little, and maybe I'm confused by exactly, but it just feels like they ultimately, and this is why I used the word cynicism earlier, cynical earlier. A note I wrote down, as I said, cynicism always threatens to kill love. Mm-hmm. Like these people, you want to like William Hurt because you like William Hurt. Yeah. You want to like Sigourney Weaver because you like, you know, and Brendan Gleeson and all these wonderful actors. And, and even the grace I'll show some of the scripting, I, I, this time viewing it, I really judged William Hurt harshly when he is poeticizing to the elders mm-hmm. because I yes. thought you, you jerk. No, you don't get to espouse love. And still want to hold on to this. Right. Yes. Because they are, well, because they are polar opposites of each other. They are oil and water. You do not operate in fear and operate in love at the same time. You know what? Um, we, we will probably start winding down here shortly, but this is probably a good time. I had two scriptures that I think we've used on this show before, but they couldn't be more palpable or relevant to what this story is, is driving at. The first one is one I know we've referenced before, might have referenced it in our pilot episode. First John chapter four, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And I wanted to key specifically in on that, that it's usually just sort of passed over in the passage because fear has to do with punishment. 
It is about consequence and it is about this sort of, uh, uh, you know, we're going to get punished for transgressing. And that's all rooted in fear. That's fear theology. We're going to get punished for transgressing. Then Second Timothy chapter one, verse seven, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, yep. but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And some translations, mm-hmm. just to be uh, my, my theological scholars out there are going to say like, well, that translation of fear really is talking about timidity. True, but it's the same thing. He didn't give us a fear. He didn't give us a spirit that makes us retreat. He didn't give us a right, fear, right, a spirit right, that makes right. us seclude ourselves and isolates us. He's given us power, strength, you know, wholeness, love, which is open heartedness towards your fellow man, believers or non-believers, and a sound mind, clear thinking, reasonable, rational thinking. Those are the things which God purports in us. That's what Christ likeness really is. And we begin to, amongst a multitude of other things like self-sacrifice and emptying of yourself. That's what Christ likeness is as well. But power and love and a sound mind are staples of healthy theological presence. And they are so I, I am actively resisting going off on how <laughs> the church is not known for power and love and sound mind anymore. Right, right, right. The church is known for fragility and judgmentalism and it tends to be known for irrational thinking and a an anti-intellectual well think about the think about this read think about this the um the line when lucius is is companioning with fenton on the tower and imagine this being said out of the mouth of a 21st century churchgoer and it will perfectly sync up what does fenton say about why we stay here. And he says, because out there, there are wicked places where wicked people live. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. And, and you just identified it perfectly. Well, what happens? Are we going to judge Noah? Maybe, but the wickedness is going to find you. You cannot just cloister yourself and isolate yourself and seclude yourself in such a way that these things aren't going to find you because they're woven into our DNA. And I don't mean that as in necessarily that what I didn't mean was, you know, we're all just going to ultimately do bad things. That's not what I mean. But there is a way in which you just, it is unhealthy and inappropriate and unfaithful to pretend that we aren't capable of things just because we sort of sequester ourselves from others and to somehow play this, uh, wicked places where wicked people live kind of card is so 2017 American. <laughs> It, it it absolutely is, and you know what? I'm looking I'm looking something up because I didn't plan to to talk about it, but I want to get the reference right. Okay, so the the story is in Luke chapter 18. It's the story of uh, that Jesus tells about the two prayers that are prayed. One uh, is prayed by a Pharisee. The other is prayed by a by a publican, like a like a tax collector. Sure. And the Pharisee is God. I thank you so much that I'm not like them. Yep. That I'm not yeah. like this person. Come on, bro. And and the publican is sitting there. Have mercy on me because yep. I'm like them. And Jesus is making a very specific distinction there as to who God is listening to in those two yep. examples. Sure, and he sure. says definitively that the publican's prayer is heard. That that's what's heard. And the more that we, it happens so frequently that we will look at, well, they are the problem. It's those other people who do those other things. They are the problem. G.K. Chesterton, who I quote a lot and I read a lot, and every one of our listeners should as well. G.K. Chesterton responded to an inquiry 
listed. I forget the I forget the headline. I forget the the or the uh, the publication. But there was a publication asking for submissions, letter to the editor, submissions. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, in his self-deprecating, humorous way, but pretty profoundly, wrote in very simply, "Dear sirs, in response to what's wrong with the world, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton." Wow. And yeah. it is this idea of we always want to say love the sinner, hate the sin. We bandy that about without really diving into That's what it means. And a more biblical, I believe, a more, a more Christ-like understanding is love the sinner, hate my sin, hate uh, what uh, I do, yeah, yeah. love the sinner and and have mercy on me. I am one. Or, or yeah, I mean, I think, I think you wouldn't even be incorrect in just finishing your sentence at love the sinner. <laughs> <laughs> right. You right. know, I mean, really. And, and it's and fascinating. Yeah. Oh. I was just going to say it's fascinating. And sort of my, maybe my final sort of thematic contribution here is I, I've something that has nestled in my brain the more we're talking is the inescapability of uh, Lucius's fate. Yes. You know, you could say, like, does he survive? We, you know, we're, we're not really left with that information. I think you're, it's meant to suggest that he probably will, but. Right, right. There's a way in which you could say, well, because I, I think, and I keep coming back to these lines, you are fearless in a way I shall never know. That moment is so telling of those two characters. Right. Like, right. William Hurt lives and acts out of fear. He, now, ignoring the sort of nuance or the context to some of this, he doesn't and can't and never has expressed himself to Sigourney Weaver, right? Not right. Um, Won't even shake her hand. He has, right. He hand. has, right. he has architected this entire sort of micro society. Um, he is, ex he is fear personified. Yeah. Um, and Lucius, who doesn't think about, uh, what will happen, only what needs to be done, never operates out of fear. And you could say, well, yes, Lucius gets stabbed in the gut twice. And I would say, Yes, that is true. But Lucius gets to live fully and wholly in the love he has for this person. Yes. Before this ever happens. And I keep coming back to the movie Arrival, but you could make all of this a faithful living sort of biblical sort of idea. I think we are in grave danger when out of fear of all of the things that could ever happen to us, we never actually honor those around us and ourselves in turn and God in turn by living whole as whole people, which means being able to, in Lucius's case, profess the love he has for Ivy, right, um, which has right. always been there, you know, um, which in many others case may be stepping out in a certain sort of faith way in a way that you've always felt maybe called to, but felt hampered by real practicalities or fear. You know what I mean? Like I think right, there's such right. a specific, you know, you, you called me out on Beekner quotes a couple episodes ago, and I'm going to actually, I'm going to actually use one that's hanging over our mantle. That is in fact a Beekner quote. And it says, this is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Mm. Do not be afraid. Mm. You know, and you've got these elders who say, who, who stop at, this is the world. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, and, or, or rather they say, this is the world. Terrible things will happen. Be afraid, run and hide. Yes. Run and hide, run and, you know, uh, scatter yourselves because the film also has a significant, and I'll come back to that moment. This is what I was going to say about the, the, the moment that we both love where, where Ivy holds out her hand. The film has, oh, I love that scene so much. I know <laughs> that might, that might, I, I mean, take Shamlin out of the picture. Like if I had to, I, I don't know that I could actually do it, but if I had to sit down and make like a top 10 or 15 scenes 
ever. Like that might make that list. It's powerful. It's so powerful. And because of that scene and because of Ivy and Lucius's relationship, the film has a tremendous amount of things to say about trust because this, mm, the yeah, elders are yeah. saying, trust us, be afraid. Trust us, be terrified. Yep. Trust yep. us, all this other sort of stuff. But then Ivy instinctively puts trust because of what? Because of the love that she has. And that moment, I, I referenced the passage earlier from First John, that moment, what happens when Ivy trusts more than she's af afraid and trusts out of love? Oh, Perfect yeah, love drives yeah, out yeah. fear. She stands wow. there and she Look says, at you. I Look am going to. Yeah, man. That's good. And she holds that hand out saying, he's coming. He's yep. coming. And oh my Ooh. God, what would happen if more faithful, I'm about to, this is the, this is the Pentecostal preacher in me there starting to come out. What would happen if more faithful Christ-like believers, instead of get in the basement, hide, lock the doors, keep all the bad people out, extended a hand and said, yep. he's coming. The king's yep. coming. We can trust. We stand here. We know there are monsters about. We know that there are things worth being afraid of. But he's coming. If there was more sort of that prophetic spirit extending the hand out, knowing in hope that it will be, you know, we talked about this with Bone Tomahawk when we went off about that whole like having value and and the substance of things not seen and, and the evidence of things hopes things hoped for. Sure, Ivy sure. standing on the porch with her hand extended is one of the most profound statements of what I consider to be authentic faith I have ever seen in any film. And yep. yes, it's rooted in romantic relationship. It's rooted in all of those things. I'm aware of that, listeners. But that doesn't it's matter. It's still that's to not, me. That's not. Oh, yeah. and, and the fact that what happens right before the red cloaked thing that, they, that we don't speak of gets to her, he grabs her hand and ushers her in. And so good. Whoa, I love this movie so yep. much. This is so and great. then the, and then the score kicks in and oh. we all cry and we cheer and yeah. Oh. And I, and I would just say, cause we need to wind down. We've already been, we've already been talking a while. We knew this episode was going to go a little long and that's fine. Um, but this is a subject you and I are both deeply passionate about clearly, not just as it pertains to the film, the village, but this subject sure. in general. It's why we do a show about horror films and faith is we are not called to live in fear. We are not called to live in fear of anything except for the fear and trembling we work out our salvation with, which we've already right. unpacked doesn't mean run and hide. We are, we are not called to be afraid of the world, afraid of the government, afraid of them, the other, the thing. We are not called to be afraid. We are called to live in power and in love and in clear thinking, a sound mind. And when we, dig our heels in to be perfected in the love of Christ and in the love of God, that perfect love we are promised in Scripture will drive out that fear, will cast yeah. it out, because we will no longer, as Lucia says, think about what will happen. We will think about what needs to be done. And yeah. we will no longer be afraid of the infection coming into us. We will be concerned with the broken and the suffering that need us to treat that infection, that need us to extend gracious and healing hands towards a, a hurting world that we are charged with carrying a gospel to them that says you are loved and there is healing available for you. But we don't carry that message. We take it and we fabricate a, a time capsule somewhere off in the in the village and 
us us yep. in this seclusion will be safe we'll be fine you, you you make me think of that and this is a this is a good segue towards our david pumpkins in, a, in these last minutes but <laughs> yes. one, one of my one of my dislikes um is i love i said leaving talismans of the past just sitting out i love how everybody in their little house has their little box <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> yeah. dang y'all i mean i know it's a it's a crude society you fabricated here but it couldn't be that hard to break into those if someone really wanted to and your whole your whole ruse is undone. Yeah, but it's so uh, true. Yeah, that is a little sad. Well, we need right, to let's, uh, let's... we need to get into David Pumpkins. I'm gonna let you lead the charge on this one because I know I, I have a feeling I know what your ratings are gonna be. Well, I, you know, I, I struggle a little bit. Um, so <laughs> as I always do. Um, so yes, we're going to talk about we're going to rate the village in our typical style of how many David S. Pumpkins <laughs> um, on three specific categories. Style, which is a bit interpretive, scares, and finally substance. Um, I think if I'm going to dock this movie anywhere, it might ultimately be style, but I just, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know it. where, I don't know where my problems with the movie would manifest in a rating. So, um, I, I'm going to go in terms of style. I'm going to, I'm going to go a four. Okay. Okay. Well, here's how I did it because it's a, it's an insurmountable problem for me because there are things about this film that would be a solid five and things about this right, film that would honestly be a one. So I went ahead for style specifically and just split the difference. And I said, you know, like, I think this is a very well crafted film. Uh, I gave it a three for style just because I think that's fair to my problems with the premise, but my sure. accolades towards some of the individual moments. So I gave it a three. That uh, sounds good. I like, I like that logic. Um, in terms of scares, this is not your traditional kind of horror scary movie per se. There are some very legitimate stress moments. Um, I would say probably for me, scares might fall on a three. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for me as well, it's a, it's a three because there are a couple of those moments, but even sort of the scary moments, uh, bleed into something more emotionally resonant and, right, right. and doesn't necessarily, you know, hit for frights. So I gave it a three for scares as well. I can, I can dig on that. So finally, with substance, I think, uh, giving, giving acknowledgement to some of its, I can't tell if the movie's just confused or he's trying to say what it actually is there, but I'd say in terms of substance, clearly it's springboarded a robust conversation. So I'm going to give it a solid four on substance. Okay. All right. And once again, you and I are in agreement because I think that a lot of it is, uh, I give it a four as well. I think a lot of it comes down to we, because of how we're framed and because of how we think about things, have have uh, gleaned some things that maybe other viewers might not have immediately attached themselves to, or maybe they did, and or whatever. But um, but I definitely think there is substance to be mined from its from its narrative and from its premise. Um, so I gave it a four as well, and that brings its David S. Pumpkins rating. We are officially Fear of God formal David S. Pumpkins. We give it. Seven out of ten. We give the village seven how out did, of ten. Um, David Ennis. How did that compare to Split and The Visit? Uh, Split, I think we also gave seven. Uh, the Visit, we gave nine. Mr. Fives all the way around. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but no, I think Split, I would have to go back and listen to it. Um, but I, I think Split, we gave it a seven out of, out of ten. So it's, it's right in line with all that. So cool. Um, so well, yeah, bring us, bring us home, Riri. All right. So uh, very quickly, our social media cues the fear because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not at all the end of the conversation. No, uh, sir. We would love to hear your thoughts on this film and about what we've had to say about it. You can reach out to us in a number of ways. The easiest and simplest way is probably through Twitter. We are uh, what is our Twitter handle, Nathan? At the fear of God. 
There's also a link there to Facebook. You can go to our Facebook page, like us there, post there to us, comment on some of our posts. Um, you can also email us, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Again, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com, all one word. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter besides the fear of God? At the Nathan Rouse. Um, you can also go to morethanonelesson.com and leave a comment on one of our uh, formal posts there. Um, and we would love an iTunes review. If you, we've got a couple of yep. new ones uh, recently, but if you would be so kind as to pop over to iTunes and and give us an iTunes review, it really helps uh, boost our listenership. We'd re- greatly appreciate it. Um, and as always, listener, just thank you for spending this time with us, Nathan. Thank yes. you uh, yes. for, for participating, for suggesting Springtime for Shyamalan for an yes. excuse to talk about this film. Uh, I've really, I've substantially enjoyed this conversation very, very much as I do all of ours. And thank you so much for having it with me. Yeah. Likewise, my friend. We'll see you next time, guys, when we're covering what's next. Next, we are going to be tackling uh, aliens and faith with signs. Science, science and faith. Those irreconcilable bedfellows, all science and faith. <laughs> On that note. See you guys. Bye.